lucky interim, you have got such an incredibly deep bench of good preachers here. You just pull them out of the pew. That's not exactly how Craig got to us. Um, most of us, many of us have seen um, Craig's face and know Craig's voice for years and years. Uh, some of you may have either been at Lovett when he was chaplain there or had kids there at Lovett. Um, gosh, Craig, I think you were there 10 years. Um, as a Methodist, correct? As a Methodist. And somehow, who knows, he ran up against the Episcopal Church and, and started hanging out with us. Um, Craig is an honors graduate of Valdosta, Vanderbilt Divinity School, Yale Divinity School, and Georgia State College of Law, where he was editor-in-chief of the Law Review. So, you know, we didn't just pluck him out of the pew. <laughs> Craig actually knows what he's doing more than we do. Um, and today, uh, Craig will be talking with us. I love this title, um, very Flannery O'Connor, The Violent Bear It Away. It's also a quote out of script, right out of Matthew's scripture. Looking at Matthew's Jesus in turbulent times, um, in convulsive times, Craig says, not unlike our own. So uh, it is a real, a deep joy to welcome before us um, Craig Cleland. Thank you, Darlene. Thank you, Martha. I'm so uh, delighted to be here. And I, I, again, I just can't believe you showed up uh, in the teens. I, you know, when I got up and I walked downstairs, we have a, a new Basset Hound rescue puppy, Peaches, who's a little more than we can handle. But uh, I went down, I hit my phone on the solar and it said 13 and I was like, oh my God, I'm going back to bed. <laughs> So thank you, thank you very much for being here. The uh, slide, we'll take down the lights just a, a little bit to look at this slide, is, uh, is just a follow-up on the sermon. It's, a, um, it's actually a picture of a tapestry that's in my favorite cathedral, which is uh, Our Lady of All Angels in Roman Catholic in Los Angeles. And I find myself out there from work from time to time. It's downtown, and I always, uh, when I'm there, try to find a few minutes to walk up the hill, past Disney Hall, up Bunker, past Disney. On the other side, it's, um, it was a, it's a postmodern cathedral. And uh, it's really spectacular, modern, holy space. It's just, you have to see it. But one of the things it has is about 28, 30 tapestries, and they're all about 50 feet high and eight feet wide. So you can't get the scale here. Uh, but this one is the center panel over the baptistry. And uh, it is a very powerful, um, powerful depiction of, of Jesus being baptized by John. And you can even still see on John's face this kind of look of, oh my God, this is really wrong. Something is wrong here. It should be the other way around. Uh, so um, offer, offer you that. It's wonderfully incarnational. You can kind of see the water going everywhere. And I like Jesus' dirty foot pads, especially shining up at us. So, yeah. 
We do have, um, we do have a, the lesson from Matthew today of Jesus' baptism, which is a little different uh, from the others. One of the big issues from, for the early church was John the Baptist. Uh, he was, according to Josephus, far more popular and well-known than the one reference Jesus gets in Josephus, which is the brother of James, the one they call Messiah. That's it. So he is really a very prominent righteous figure and prophet at the time. And the early church had to manage John uh, in the baptism uh, and, uh, that you get in Luke. Uh, Luke very carefully places uh, John as a cousin of Jesus. He, he and a forerunner. He's a forerunner in Matthew, but less so. He's not a cousin in Matthew. Nothing about that there. Interesting, in Luke, John's left out. It's the, they fall into the passive voice in the Greek. He was baptized. There's no John there. He comes back with a vengeance in John's gospel, but that's uh, you, uh, pretty much done 120-something years after the fact, we, we're guessing. I'm, I'm looking for my little piece of scripture here. Hold on a moment. The violent bear it away is a, is, is a reference to something Jesus said when he was actually finished talking about John the Baptist. He says that of all men born of women, John is it. But John is least in the kingdom of heaven. Don't know what he meant by that. Not quite sure. Maybe that was Matthew. But then he goes on to say, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forced, and the violent have seized it and borne it away. What you have to do when you're reading the Gospels is think of two windows. One is a window into actually what you're reading what's happening in the scene. That's usually what we've talked about on Sunday. The other window is every, each of the Gospels, and in particular the synoptics, are a window into a time, a community, a place, flesh and blood, people of faith like you and me. And why that's important is because they're written after the fact. The earliest documents in, in the uh, New Testament are Paul's letters and some of the other epistles. It's only really later that we get to the synoptics, typically around the year 70, maybe for Mark, maybe a little earlier, maybe a little later. None of these things are dated. By the way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're not sitting there by candlelight like, you know, Lincoln writing this out. <laughs> it's really... Uh, uh, a whole inherited oral tradition that somehow lands in these documents that are very confusing. So you have the synoptics and then you have John. But the times around the year 70, and most, most scholars believe that Matthew was written sort of after 70, maybe as late as 80, but certainly in that time period, the times were so tumultuous. They were really some of the worst times for Jews that they had known in their history. Uh, Rome had, I'll flip to the next one, let me see. 
There we go. Ro nothing to memorize, no, no dates, <laughs> no, no panic. It just helps you if it helps you. We just, uh, the Jews just finished celebrating Hanukkah, which celebrates the Maccabean Revolt, which was, gave the Jews 100, almost 100 years of self-rule uh, in the Holy Land. And it was huge, and it's still looked back upon as, as a, a, an amazing time and experience. What's important, though, is that it wasn't all that many years, about 80 years later, before Rome essentially conquered Palestine and the Holy Land. It's all under Roman control. It's fairly loose at first. Rome works with the Herods, the collaborators, <laughs> the Jewish collaborators. Herod the Great is the one we all know, the Holy Innocents Herod, the one that uh, supposedly um, killed all the male boy children under a certain age uh, to try to find the Messiah and make sure that he was always the king of the Jews. But you have in the back of Jews' minds the Maccabean revolt and the success it brought. And so what you see over time is within all the Judaisms of the time, and there was everything from the Sadducees who were sort of, you know, the temple priest and the hereditary elite who were allied with the wealthy and the blessed, down to the very poorest and the most radical uh, sex groups, the Sakari, later the Zealots. There's a bunch in between there, but you see, because the Jews have in the back of their minds success at defeating an empire, you see constant revolts and revolutions over time. I, saw, I thought about putting some of them on here, but there's just too many. <laughs> so starting as soon as Rome is on board, the, the Jews, various factions, groups, and they're fighting with one another, are also fighting with Rome. And, and we'll just put the word on it. How did this appear to Rome? As terrorist. They really viewed it as terrorism. They viewed it at, Rome was not particularly opposed to the Jews. They had actually, there, a lot of the Caesars had a lot of respect for the Jews. They seemed to be an old culture, uh, the Romans thought. But when it comes to challenging our military or economic might, Rome was what? Well, we could say efficient, right? <laughs> efficient is probably a good way to put it. They did not hesitate at any point in their empire, and this is how we get the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that lasted so many hundred years. I mean, that's not to say that it was, in fact, this is all right in the middle of the Pax Romana. It's not to say that there weren't skirmishes, wars, this and that, but on the whole, they, they, they conquered the known earth and were able to maintain a lot of peace by having an iron fist and uh, by their economic, they really, uh, a, a remarkable economic system that they had at the time. So they, they conquer Palestine. Herod the Great is in place for 30 years or so. The, the, the second temple is being built. It's taking about 70, 80 years to build it, and it's finished right at 59. Uh, Herod dies, uh, we think that uh, based on the, the best 
There's no dates in, in the Gospels either. <laughs> but the, the best guesses based on the Gospels and the extra Gospel text we have is that that's about when Jesus was born, right around that time. The census could have been a little later, uh, who knows, but it was there. The census caused riots all over the Holy Land and Palestine. The Jews were incensed about the census. Uh, they did not want to submit. Uh, then you have collaborators like Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate. He's a Roman and is a prefect over the area. Then you get Jesus and his ministry and his crucifixion sort of in there somewhere, give or take a few years. We sort of know that because of the age of, of Jesus as he's recounted in the gospel. And then the temple, the second temple is completed in uh, 59. One of the, James, the brother of Jesus, is murdered um, by the high priest and, uh, and the Sanhedrin in 62. He's thrown off the parapets and then stoned after he lands. Peter and Paul uh, become martyrs uh, in Rome. Uh, Paul is in and out of the Holy Land. As you know, he had a big ministry all over the place. Uh, he didn't get along well with much that was going on in Jerusalem or around the Holy Land. Uh, you can pick that up both in his letters and in Acts. But one of the most interesting things is there's a, a, a sort of cascading series of revolts and, and riots and chaos in the known world uh, to these Jews. And by the way, very important point, the early Christians did not know they were early Christians. <laughs> they thought they were the last Jews. So we have this, we have this, uh, uh, Rabbi Silberman, at, at, um, who taught me um, Hebrew at Vanderbilt, he said, just remember, Craig, you're just a member of our most successful heresy. <laughs> and it's true. And, and for years and decades, Jews and Christians were not separate. You get John Chrysostom coming back and writing in the three, as late as the 300s to Christians saying, you don't need to go to the synagogue. Christians were going to the synagogue even as late as that. <clears throat> but what set off a huge riot uh, around this time was Nero's proposal to put a, a, a statue of Jupiter in the temple, or at least in the area of the temple. The temple was one of the, must have been one of the world's most remarkable buildings at the time. Um, there was a huge riots and protests and the various radical sects were uh, unleashing all their fury. The zealots came in and killed all of the Sadducees. They, that's, they're still in the Bible for some reason, but they're gone actually at the time that these texts were written. The, the high priests, they're out. And the Pharisees really had not risen too, too much until later about this same time. So, then you, we have what we sometimes call as the most famous mooning of all times. One Roman soldier, and Josephus says it was a whole group, decided that they would moon all the Jews, the high priests, and everybody just outside the Holy of Holies, which is uh, set off, not surprisingly, <laughs> another whole series of riots. So what's happening back in Rome? Nero is sort of falling apart, he commits suicide uh, about somewhere around 66, 67, right around there. But Rome decides to bring all this unrest 
that they've been putting up with to them forever and patiently to an end. They start, they start at the coast at Caesarea Philippi, and they start making their way, the legions, along the way. In the middle of that, Nero commits suicide. Vespasian, who's the general who's in charge of all the legions, comes back, is called back to Rome. So there's actually a big pause, which gave all the Jews, what? A wonderfully false hope that everything was over, right? And that they would still get their independence. This is probably about 67, 68. So there's a pause. Meanwhile, Rome is bitterly defeated by a queen in Britain. Loses several thousand men in a terrible, this is way before we get to the British monarchy. This is sort of the tribal system still in Britain. But they took that lesson back to Rome and they said what? You will not catch us flat-footed again. So Vespasian, the former general, now the emperor, he gets made emperor before he even gets back to Rome. He sends his son Titus, who's now general, to the Holy Land and says, clean it up, close it down. I don't want there to be a memory of Jerusalem. 10 to 12 legions come in from the coast, make their way through all the same places that had been previously conquered, and they get to Jerusalem, and Titus sets up camp on the Mount of Olives, which apparently actually had some trees in those days. So he sets up camp and has the, the soldiers build a wall, a stone wall around the city. He cuts the city off from food, water, any kind of egress or ingress. And what happens is exactly as you might imagine. Josephus describes it in grim detail, and I won't. But people starved. He says people ate their belts. Some resorted to cannibalism. It was just awful. They were essentially cut off from any supply or food of water. And then at the appropriate time, Rome did what? They scale the ramparts, they release the siege engines, and they released 10 to 12 legions on the city. And it was where then Jewish Christianity lived, as did Judaism. And what happened was blood in the streets. They went from house to house, the soldiers, and slayed everyone they could find, saving a few things, a few people, for the parade back in Rome so that they could honor Caesar with this victory. Uh, they took the Torah back. They took several other sort of very valuable things. But in short, um, Josephus says 30,000, 40,000 people died in the streets, were viciously murdered, and left. And then fire was set to the city, starting with the temple. And all that remained at the end was the West Wall, which is where we see today sort of people standing and praying. It, it was uh, horrifying. 
it was a ripping out of everything that Judaism knew because Judaism's primary connection to its faith was what? They were people of the land, Am Haaretz. They're the temple just rebuilt the second temple. It took 78 years is gone. It's decimated. It's really when we get the second diaspora. Jews, of course, spread all over the place, right? The Jewish Christians, who really weren't using the word Christian at that point, right, who still sort of existed, Matthew uses the word church, he's the only gospel writer who does, just sort of existing in these little house meetings, right, are part of all this chaos, and most of them are Jews, there are Gentiles, but most are Jews, and they're equally as decimated by this. Masada, three years later, you've probably heard the story of Masada. Um, that's a, a <laughs> another sort of siege where we'll sit them out, we'll smoke them out, and then we'll scale the walls and we'll go in. Josephus comes out with his antiquities. Uh, Simon Bar Kokhba, uh, uh, start, he is uh, declared the Messiah uh, uh, in the 120s, and he and his radical groups start to bring another rebellion. And at that point, Rome had really had enough, and they sent in more legions, and they completely decimated the place again, built a temple to Jupiter and the other Roman gods, renamed it Aeola Capitolina, no more Jerusalem, uh, instituted laws that anyone who was circumcised could not enter the city for 50 years. So you, what, you, what you get then is Matthew Mark, Luke, John is down, down in here. What you get, right around 70 to 80, maybe to 85, you get these Gospels being written, and you can see the chaos. One of the things that's very clear is that the early Jewish Christians started to believe that Jesus' rejection by the Jews was the cause of all this. And... The Jewish scribes and rabbis set about for basically 150 years to correct that impression, right? This is before there was ever a separation. But by the time we get to here, we really are separated. And by the time we get to here, the first Jewish revolt, the first Jewish war, we're also really apart. Consequently, what you get in Matthew is this tension about the law and the prophets and whether someone, you see it in Paul, has to be circumcised, but more importantly, whether you have to follow the law to be a Christian. And you have Jesus saying in Matthew, more strongly than anywhere else, I come not to change a jot or a tittle of the law, is the old uh, version of it. You see tensions within Judaism. You see Jesus going past the law. I, you're not supposed to kill. I tell you, don't even get angry in the Sermon on the Mount. The unfortunate thing that sometimes Christian history and the history of the church forgot, that those are battles between Jews. 
Those are struggles between Jews. So that when it says in Matthew, uh, his blood be on our head and the heads of our children, that was used <laughs> uh, very unfortunately by Christians in our history when we were um, anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic, leading all the way up uh, from, from Luther all the way up to uh, German theology in the 19th century and right into the Nazis. So we as Christians, when we, we read these tensions in Matthew's gospel between the law, the Jews, and what seem to be Christians, we forget that we're really talking Jews to Jews here for the most part. The birth narratives are, are equally interesting in, in Matthew. He, does, he has several women in the birth na narratives, which is really odd because almost all of them have some uh, kind of interesting or maybe eyebrow-raising sexual history. Um, I'll leave you to that. Just go look at the, <laughs> it'll be, give you a reason to read the genealogy in Matthew, uh, right? It'll give you some, uh, some places at the bottom to look back. Think of Tamar and you'll get there. The ancestor list, Matthew's very keen on showing that this, is this, this guy is connected to Abraham and David, right? And yet, when he gets to Joseph, he breaks it all off, right? Because we already have this bubbling, uh, a, a virgin gave birth here, which is a mistranslation of the Hebrew in the Septuagint. It was just a young woman, and now it became a virgin, a virgin in the Greek which is sort of a really interesting thing. The Annunciation, our Christmas story is a conflation. The Annunciation in Matthew comes to Joseph, not Mary. So we would have a different window <laughs> in the church if it, if it were otherwise, right? Peter takes a whole new place. Peter was, as we know, <laughs> the, the sort of founder of the church uh, in Jerusalem, and James, the brother of Jesus, we're, at, we're talking actual brothers, even though you'll still find many in the Catholic tradition that deny that that was a genetic relationship, but they call it cousin. They think brother, the word brother has to be translated as cousin. <clears throat> but, and that's because the perpetual virginity of Mary, you didn't, there were no brothers, sisters. Peter has a special place. He seems to be closer in Matthew to Jesus than he is in any of the Gospels. He's given that, that name. Petra is, is the Greek word. It means rock, which is feminine. So Jesus uh, kind of made a funny play on the word, turning it into Petra, which is not a word that even exists in the Greek, but in order to make it masculine. So it's kind of the word rocky is kind of what he was really, the name rocky is kind of what he ended up giving. You get all these statements about the Gentiles and the Samaritans in Matthew that are very vehement. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. And yet at the end of the gospel, you get what? You get this go and make disciples of all nations. To, so you, you see the tension here born of the community. Matthew himself, we don't know a whole lot about him. I mean, 
None of these people actually authored the Gospels. Sorry to disrupt your faith this morning. But <laughs> none of them authored the Gospels. They were, their names were actually attached to the Gospels, sort of right around somewhere between 150, right around there. And, and I've always felt sorry for Matthew because everybody got like a, an eagle, a lion, a griffin, you know. And Matthew's just like a man. It's like, poor Matthew. What, what we know in the, in the text is he's a tax collector. He wasn't really a tax collector because Rome would never let a non-Jew collect taxes for it. Who <laughs> said he was more like a customs officer, a toll collector, people who were hated because they were also collaborators with Rome. Uh, I was reading recently that the thinking is that his bones may have ended up in Kyrgyzstan at a monastery that is now believed to be underwater uh, because of changes in the Black Sea. So who knows why and what happened to Matthew along the way. He's strongly associated with Antioch, which is in present-day Syria. So still close, as we know, to the Holy Land. But we know um, he has attributed this gospel for some reason. Authorship was not a strict thing in the minds of the day, as, as we think of plagiarism and authorship today. It was more of an attribution to him because of who he was and what he did. Matthew's Jesus is pretty conservative. He's kind of a traditionalist. Um, when he, he says to the Pharisees, when he calls them hypocrites, he's really not saying they don't practice what they preach. He's really saying they don't follow the law. So you don't really, you don't really have here uh, in so much in Matthew's Jesus, a modernizer. You have somebody who's really more sort of along the lines of the law and then the radical implications for what the law is in, in our lives. Um, I mentioned that church is a new word that's used only in Matthew as is Gentile also only used in Matthew, which says so much, says that that is the struggle that the church is going, going through. How did we end up where we are? <laughs> it's a long history. It's a long history. But this early Jewish Christian community turned out to be one of the most fragile. It did not last which is how we are who we are, a Gentile church, right? And how we ultimately were separated. It helped that we were declared to be apostates, heathens, and heretics when we were declared to be that, right? So which we sort of turned right around and returned the favor later on. But we have a church that really comes out of Paul and out of John's gospel. And so even though for 15 centuries from the early church fathers on, everyone thought Matthew was the first gospel written and everything else was based on that. And the most important and primary gospel. It wasn't until we get to the 19th century that that's even questioned. For 15 centuries, Matthew was really what it was all about. But yet we are really the inheritors of the Church of Paul and of John's Gospel. That's what we know. Think about it uh, when, you, when you think about Paul. The question for us, I think, in year A, and one thing I do, uh, try to do, I don't do it all the time, and I'll stop in a moment, is once a year, try to just like sit down, usually in Lent, and like read the Gospel of the year through, whatever, A, B, C, 
and I don't ever do it in one sitting because that's my goal, but I never get there because I fall asleep. The book falls on my head when I'm in bed. <laughs> Sydney will confess and, and confirm that. But I try to read it as just, a, just as the way it is, which is one long story, because there's so much that we don't get uh, out of it. Uh, that we don't see, that no one even knows there, because we just hear pieces of it. And I'll leave you with the weirdest thing in Matthew's Gospel, and that's the zombie apocalypse at the end. While Jesus is on the cross, uh, according to Matthew, and Matthew only, the graves are opened, and the dead come to life, and these prophets and holy figures walk into Jerusalem and start talking to people, and, uh, and it was apparently all known. It seems like a riff on a passage out of Ezekiel that maybe <laughs> you don't know if it really happened. Maybe the, somebody was just kind of riffing on that, but that's the very weirdest thing in Matthew. Uh, but in short, it is, it is a gospel that is born out of a time of the most conflicted, horrible, earth-shattering experience that a faith community could ever have. So I commit it to you. Um, and um, maybe you'll get a chance to look at it. That's it, Martha.